0: Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs.
2: Hello operatives and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yo. And tonight, we're going indie, as in indie RPGs we're going to explore the world of independent role-playing games. Not the big ones like Dungeons & Dragons that everyone knows about, but some of these smaller, less well-known ones. And who better to talk about that with than someone who's actually been a longtime player, researcher, and game designer with over 30 years of experience. I'd like you all to meet Graham McLean. Welcome to the show, Graham. Hey there. So, Graham, what exactly defines an indie RPG as far as you're concerned?
0: Um... Indie RPGs—it's actually a vague and often contested title. Uh, the term that I'd like to focus on is creator-owned, but okay. then Dungeons and Dragons was creator-owned at one point. So
2: yes, it was. Yeah. So that's a bit. So that could be confusing. Okay. So there isn't really a proper term for them. Then we just kind of use "indie" as a kind of generic label. Yes. Hmm, okay. So then, what's considered to be the first indie RPG?
0: Dungeons and Dragons.
2: Okay, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> when it was first published, it was published in, I believe, three small volumes and yes. would definitely have qualified for indie RPG status, at least based on its appearance.
0: And um, upon its uh, distribution and production mm-hmm. and everything else.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, look at that bad game art.
0: <laughs> oh, yes.
1: Well, there's there's that and I think um right off the bat you've hit on one of the uh the difficulties for role-playing games as opposed to other types of arts and entertainment is that there's such a stratification between say your A-list and your B-list um, cuz I know uh you mentioned distribution a lot of say indie film and that is considered a small production a uh, very small team working on it. And it kind of has a short run that doesn't appear in that many theaters like the local art houses. But the thing for something like a role-playing game, uh, you mentioned Dungeons & Dragons at the top, and they've sold millions of books. And then when you get to the next tier down, you're looking at, um. I know once upon a time, if a game sold 10,000 copies, that was considered a mega hit. Yes, and
0: uh, if... If you're looking at the indie RPG scene nowadays, um, often games sell in the range of single digits to dozens of copies, and if it was a game that was a mega hit, or sorry, a hit might sell a thousand copies, and a mega hit might sell two or three thousand, but it's definitely much lower standards. Than say Dungeons and Dragons, but that's the same thing. If you look at Dungeons and Dragons original release, um, it took a while before it took off too. So
2: that's true. That's yeah. true. It didn't take off immediately. It was a kind of cult hit among the university crowd first, wasn't it?
1: Yep. Yeah, and I think the 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 original white box, if I remember, they had like their run was only like a couple of hundred copies, wasn't it?
0: I don't know the exact number. Um, You'd have to talk to John Peterson for that. But yeah, it sounds like a couple hundred copies to possibly a thousand copies at most. Yeah, but it's very small.
2: Hmm. Okay, so then at what point do we truly start differentiating between indie and mainstream? I mean, after D&D became mainstream was everything else now independent? I mean, what point do RPGs kind of start to branch off? Can we truly say there's an indie line and there's a mainstream line?
0: Um, actually, the creator ownership is the reason why most uh, indie RPGs prefer to uh, prefer the term creator-owner-owned to mm-hmm. indie. Okay. Um, because that differentiates between a company owning the game and mm. the owner, the creator owning the game. Right. And it works better than indie and mainstream as a
2: category. Okay.
0: But because
2: So would you rather we use the term creator owned for the rest of this discussion then?
0: Um, Not exactly because it's easy enough to just say indie RPG and define it as creator owned, okay. but it's, in, in the same way that indie RPGs have, uh, their own market, they have mm-hmm. their own companies. And that creates a little bit confusion as well because, you know, Bully Pulpit is, is producing games right now for the indie scene,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but they're a company which is owned by Jason Morningstar and Steven, I forgot what his last name, Segedi. And, they're big in the indie scene as well, so mm-hmm. it's not really an issue which has a clear line between
2: them. Right. I was going to say, yeah, a lot of indie publishers, even if they are just one person, they usually create a company to go with it, so it's hard to tell sometimes.
0: And it, that even goes as far as uh, Evil Hat, which is producing a lot of indie RPGs, but it has uh, bigger names to it, bigger game, name games to it as well
1: hmm okay well, that's interesting too because um that's um if you go back to the the earlier days of gaming there were a lot of companies that that did that sort of thing like uh if you think something like say palladium palladium books is presented as this this big company and nowadays it is but originally it was just kevin simbita publishing his own stuff
2: yep hmm. true yeah, and so a lot, well, I guess technically every gaming company, almost every game company started out as this small creator-owned endeavor, didn't it? I mean, there's not many that didn't.
0: No, there's yeah. not many that did, didn't, did but uh, there are a few companies that started off as companies instead of companies run by designers. And okay. I'm looking to, uh, Cult was republished by an independent uh, company as well mm-hmm. as uh, its own creators. So mm-hmm. it's, I can't tell you the names of companies that did that, mm-hmm. but uh, I was approached by Madhouse Productions, which co- collapsed before it published anything,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and they wanted to get licensed to one of my games. And
3: mm-hmm.
0: that would have been an example of. company that was hiring creators as opposed to being creators
2: right Mm. Mm. that makes sense i I mean there's a long history of that the first company i can think of that was doing that kind of thing offhand i think was probably (coughs) fantasy games unlimited yeah Mm. back at the beginning of the 80s i mean i don't think Fantasy games unlimited produced any of their own games i think it was all other people's Stuff that they were basically printing or hiring people to do. I'm not sure which, actually. I don't know the whole story behind FGU.
0: It's very difficult because you may look into them and just find out that the names on the board were the original creators of the original games. Then they expanded Mm -hmm. the line, or they might not be.
2: Right. well, I know that Fancy Games Unlimited, at least, did actually have one person behind it. Like, there was one main person who was acting as the publisher, because mm-hmm. when it eventually went, you know, bottom-up, uh, what happened is is that he took all the rights to all the games with him, and forced all the game creators to actually have to sue him to get the rights back.
3: Ooh. Nasty.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it was even worse what he was doing is he was actually republishing some of the games electronically once he could and so he was publishing in the internet age he was publishing pdfs of them and then claiming they were still in print so therefore the game creators didn't deserve to have the copies back
0: and that uh, gets into intellectual property law and different Mm -hmm. countries have different laws and different contracts have different wordings and that's right. I've explored that aspect of uh copyright and it is a mess to get into. So
2: Oh I believe uh, it. I believe it. Yeah. Okay then, so but if we're gonna follow the whole indie mainstream line, what would technically the first true indie game be that became kind of a cult hit but never really gathered mainstream appeal?
0: Ooh. Um <laughs> Indie but not main, not mainstream. Hmm. I don't know. It's because okay, there can. are, okay. there's so much overlap between the terms indie and mainstream that you right. can have a creator owned game that is mainstream
2: and well, mm-hmm.
0: mainstream in terms of role playing games because role playing games is a niche market. So yeah.
2: Okay, so that's actually a very difficult question to answer. Then, I mean, as you said, almost all the early games started out as creator-owned at some point, and then they t- and then they shifted at some point to become a company or or grow up. Or and grow- I,
0: I can point to games that have been mainstream and never had an indie status, but mm. indie games that never uh, that achieved success but never went mainstream is a lot rarer.
2: Right. Mm. Okay.
0: Hmm. Now, the best example of that might be a couple of games here which are like Apocalypse World, which has indie status but is in the process of going mainstream, but it's still in production. Mm. So
1: it might go mainstream. I don't know. Because I would be tempted I think if I had to, to to answer Rob's question, the first one that I would think of that kind of I think people thought of as an indie game would be uh it came from the late 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 show okay yeah and I th- and I would say that, but I gotta I gotta add the caveat that I think um indie game and cult game might overlap a bit because it's it's again it's one of those things that a small number of people participated in and are familiar with people have heard of it and mm-hmm. any and and it has this like cadre of like hardcore fans
0: uh empire of the Petal throne is much the same it's mm-hmm. sort of a creator owned game which became owned by TSR eventually but it never hit mainstream but it has a cult following and that's uh that there's a lot of overlap between the cult following, the indie game following and the mainstream following. But yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah, right. Plus Empire of the Pedal Throne, that's like what, the second, third or fourth role playing game ever? Technically. Yes.
2: Was that that's... its own role playing game? I thought that was just a setting for D and D.
0: Oh god no. You had rules in the Empire of the Pedal Throne which were based upon well they were based upon Dungeons and dragons largely, but mm-hmm. it was
1: its own game right mm-hmm. Hmm, okay, I can see that yeah it was that's well that's interesting too um would it be for uh for for what considered uh an indie game would there be thematic differences compared to a a mainstream game
0: um no Whereas, uh, like, especially nowadays, um, mm-hmm. because indie game, well, yes and no. Indie games have the freedom to be a lot more wild than mainstream stream games. Mm-hmm. But there's an aspect of indie games called Heartbreakers, which are just rehashes of Dungeons and Dragons or some of the mainstream game. And that, The advantage of being able to publish electronically is that you can put out a book of 300, 400, 500, even a thousand pages of your own work for for basically free as long as you have an internet connection and a PDF creator. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Now, the indie publishing sizes of those, you know, it's it's meant to be downloaded and it probably won't ever get printed out the indie games that are common nowadays are uh, the shorter games and the uh make for much thinner books and much uh different uh book sizes and things like that so mm. they have wild premises or while uh they can also approach the mainstream premises but the fact that they need to be published in print form uh, restricts the price point because no indie creator wants to throw the money around to produce a 1,000-page book.
2: Yeah. Hmm. I can see that. I can see that. Well, do indie games tend to lend towards um, different rule sets or different approaches to gaming? Like, I mean, D&D kind of set the standard of uh, you have your character, he has his stats, you roll their dice, etc., for role playing games. But yeah. indie games tend to actually go in different directions, don't they?
0: Well, indie games, is, well, okay. Up until 2001 ish, um, indie games were very much along the same lines as mainstream games. Mm-hmm. Um, you just had, you know, worlds, fantasy worlds, or. Uh, slightly modified versions of modern day life and it you had characters with stats and dice and things like that Mm -hmm. but in 2001 um ron edwards actually started the forge community uh Mm -hmm. which was originally uh based out of hephaestus forge the website but it he then went on to start the forge website proper and uh which is still online, but it's run by, sorry, it's maintained by Vincent Baker, who is also an indie game designer. Mm-hmm. And, um, Ron Edwards promoted the concept of gamist, narrativist, and simulationist, which was three of the four subgenres of tabletop role playing games.
2: Okay. Can you explain okay.
0: Well, gamist was, uh, any game that promoted competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, narrativist. Uh, I'll get into narrativist a bit later. Uh, simulationist okay. was basically every game out there up until that point. Um, the original Dungeons and Dragons was a bit gamist, mm-hmm. but um, the most games out there, which are uh, have backgrounds to them and things like that. Uh, are simulationist and simulationist means that they're trying to create a world or a genre of or a literary genre. Mm-hmm. Narrativist games, um, actually I originally thought that it was about story and that's not what exactly what they're about. It's actually something much simpler than that. A narrativist game features a question that is answered through play. Now, the question needs to be open-ended
3: mm-hmm.
0: and it needs to be answer answerable with some sort of answer other than yes or no. So, for example, um, Vampire was mm-hmm. a semi-narrativist game because right. it explored the concept of uh, being corrupted by your vampire-ness. right? Okay, and it was the big inspiration for uh, Sorcerer, and mm-hmm. which also explored the idea of corruption. Right. But it's it was the first. It was one of the first narrativist indie games in existence. Now narrativist has changed over time mm-hmm. so originally he, uh, Ron Edwards, described narrativist as including over the edge and things like that. Mm. Now over the edge is not exactly a narrativist game anymore because the questions posed by the setting aren't worked into the rules. Okay. Hmm. So to have a narrativist game you have to have the rules represent the story or the story's question that you want to answer through the game.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so the, the rules are channeling everything towards answering that question. That's what the rules yeah. serve to do. Yes. Mm. Okay. Can you give and, an example of this in actual play? How would this work?
0: Um. Okay. Well... Let's say uh, let's go with the game Dogs in the Vineyard. Okay. Dogs in the yep. Vineyard is about the a bunch of Mormon priests dealing out justice in the Old West uh, or in the Wild West, uh, mm-hmm. trying to clamp down on Satanism and magic and anything occult and un- ungodly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's got various aspects of. Faith in it, but it has no mechanic about faith specifically. So it's uh, what's called a fruitful void uh, in the rules. So it has every mechanic it has is based on the use of faith or different aspects of the use of faith, but there's no faith stat per se.
2: Okay. So it's not like Call of Cthulhu, where there's a sanity stat that you're keeping track of, depending on you know the mental state of your character. This it's, game has no actual face stat itself, but everything else is kind of working around that idea anyway.
0: Yes, and okay. if you yeah. shoot somebody, if you shoot somebody for being Satanist, then mm-hmm. uh, manage to justify it later uh, because he was a. a devil worshipper or demon worshipper then your faith might not not be affected but if you shoot somebody or the same person and then worry about it later then your faith is affected and you become less powerful or uh hampered in that way and it's an interesting uh problem because There's no faith stat to modify. It's just role played out, but it has in-game effects.
2: Right. Okay, I can see that. So there's an actual in-game effect, but not a stat to go with it. All right. How are those in-game effects determined then? Do you gain like a little like card or something like that? How how is that uh, put upon the player?
0: it modifies the traits like your mm-hmm. character has a number of traits mm-hmm. and they can be good or good traits or bad traits they're just traits you know you mm-hmm. could have uh, blind as one of your traits and have to deal with mm-hmm. the blindness and that you could also have firearms as another trait and those are equal value um, because they both create story with, rather than being an advantage and disadvantage. Mm-hmm. So, um, if, you, uh, do and, uh, if you do something, and if you do something, you'll have your traits modified, and the exact value for uh, the modifications can be determined by the game master. Uh, depending on what he or she desires to do. So, uh, subtract 1 from the character's stats for the next conflict, take a new trait, 1D, rated 1d4 for the next conflict, change the dice of your character's relationships for the next conflict, have mm-hmm. your character leave the scene and spend time alone, choose this if nobody else ma- launches a follow-up conflict. Is a short-term fallout list. Mm-hmm. So, it's... It's actually a lot of GM decision-making. Right. And that's the thing with Vincent Baker's games. He's big on GM decision-making.
2: Right. Hmm.
0: He was also the designer behind Apocalypse World.
1: It's interesting that you you mentioned it's like the early 2000s that the truly narrativist stuff started because a lot of um, the rules that you just described, it seems to kind of borrow from uh, the live-action role-playing that kind of took off in the the mid-90s. Do you think there's some kind of connection there?
0: Oh, definitely. I wouldn't discount uh, any connection to the history at all. Uh, Sorcerer was being designed in 1995 and he didn't actually produce it till 2001. But it's it was inspired by the live action rules, it was inspired by uh, vampire rules, and it's, you know, progress is, we, we look at games like Fiasco now, which is very different from Dungeons & Dragons, but if you actually trace it through the history back to Dungeons & Dragons, it's actually occurred over a series of very, very short steps. And so to actually get to the point where a game like Fiasco, which is largely diceless, although uh the dice are rolled now and then, um but it's when you describe a story in Fiasco, the dice are used to determine whether it goes well or bad based on the color you're handed. Um not never rolled.
3: Mm, right.
0: And you can trace that back to Dungeons & Dragons where uh the dice are used, used all the time and they're rolled every time, but the colors of the dice don't matter.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And every step of the way, it's like, okay, yes, this is where that happened, that's where this happened, and this is where whatever happened. And it's actually... Very easier to trace it back all the way through Dungeons and Dragons and even beyond that.
2: So what you're saying is that aspects of indie games, even the modern ones, can still be traced back to the original role-playing games, even Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. All right, but what point do they truly start to uh, differentiate from those lines? I mean, how, how do you demarcate them?
0: Um, it's a lot easier to just put them into categories and demarcate, demarcate those categories, but the mm-hmm. categories themselves are very fuzzy, and right. it's yeah, because their categories or genres, okay mm-hmm. or subgenres or whatever you want to call them super genres, are just fuzzy as hell. Um, for example, People were arguing whether Once Upon a Time or The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen," both games mm-hmm. uh from the mid or early nineties, I think, or mid early to mid nineties mm-hmm. um, were proper role playing games or not. And so Emily Boss Emily Her Boss actually mm-hmm. came up with a new game to describe such games called Story Games and Story games included the category of role-playing games, plus any other game which created a story as part of the, the, as part of play. Mm -hmm. Um, there are fuzzy borders on that too. So, Arabian Nights, the board game, you create a story as part of play. Well, but you're not acting out the story. You're just telling the story as is written. Is that a role-playing game or is that a story game? Is or choose your own adventure books, story games or not? Hmm. I don't know, and uh. that's where the reality, you know, we try to put reality into these boxes, but it it's cultural thing. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and I think I think too, because when you look at um. Like, say, the live-action game that took off in the 90s. You can see little bits, even from like old-school role-playing games, going that way. Because I can think of two examples. Was the original Chill encouraged the Game Master to take player reactions in real life into account for their character. And um, when you got to something like, even a game like Paranoia... Uh, one of the things for a, for task resolution in the original Paranoia game is they suggested that if the player wanted to do, have their character do something like crazy and over the top, if everybody mm-hmm. thought that was cool, if all the participants, the other players, Game Master, you'd let them do it or you'd give them all kinds of bonuses. And that kind of led to the... Uh, I could see not necessarily leading, but that idea later becomes the idea in like the live action stuff where the game isn't necessarily a conflict of stats. It's like you the, the participants are bidding story points against each other, and then whoever has the, the, the wittiest repartee or whoever comes up with the most entertaining idea tends to be the one that's victorious in that encounter.
0: And it even goes on beyond that because Dog Eat Dog uh, says, okay, you have to... To determine the game master who runs the uh, colonialists who are oppressing the other players, you have to have a conversation about wealth and Mm -hmm. that the richest player is always the uh, game master, whether (laughs) you like it or not. But it doesn't define wealth, so you can get into arguments over wealth. Mm
2: -hmm. Wait, the richest player, as in the player who has the most money is automatically
0: the game master. That's not not what it says. Yes, so the player who has the most money, but the player has to have the most wealth. And wealth is a very vague term. Does Mm. it take into account debt? Does it not take into account debt? Does it Mm. take into account property ownership? Does someone who owns a home and what level of paying off the mortgage are they at? Yeah, whatever.
2: <laughs> that's actually pretty cute.
1: Okay. 1% the role playing game.
2: <laughs> exactly. Wow. Right? And you're the GM so you make the rules. Yeah. Just
1: just like real life. <laughs> that's, that's interesting too cuz um to to add to the vagary I think. When you look at like a lot of the 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 the, the more narratist games it seems like what's happening is they're actually simulation games, but you're simulating thi- different things than most games would, or you're simulating things for the player more than you're simulating things for the character.
3: Yes,
0: that's a pretty accurate description. Are mm. both Just, descriptions?
1: What's this interesting, take and that would make me wonder: um, how important do you think? Uh, uh paying mind to these distinctions is
0: um it is important as far as inspiring new ideas so if we stuck with simulationist games and it's uh and just followed that we can do that to the end of time mm-hmm. but because Ron Edwards uh was dissatisfied with simulationist games or uh, trad games, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, the term now in story games is trad. Um, then he came up with his own new categories. And it's the narrativist was an interesting enough thing that he decided to explore it more. And it's, it's produced a lot of games. Uh, but it's produced a lot of debates and produced a lot of misunderstandings. And... Mm-hmm. It's a messy field, so eh. it's <laughs> it is what it is.
1: Yeah, I can kind of yeah, because my um, I'm always kind of uh, I'll say apprehensive about um when it comes to any kind of like art or entertainment, especially the nerdly arts tend to be prone to this. I think when you start having academic studies, I find um, it's a good thing to apply in hindsight. Because if you want to see how did this come about, how do we get where we are, it, you have to have some kind of genealogy, and for that you need some kind of, of uh, structure. But I find too often what'll happen is people who are moving forward, people who are creating new stuff, get way too wrapped around the axle about stuff like that. And oh yes,
0: hmm. Oh yes,
1: hmm. Because that's where um, and and it becomes there gets to be a, a hierarchy that this kind of safer games, this kind of game is inherently superior to this one. When I don't think, especially for gaming, that's true. Cause it's all just a different kind of experience.
0: And Ron Edwards, as a great man, as a thinker, as he was, was very prone to that sort of thinking. And, you know, he, he's a university professor of biology at, I forget what university it used to be, um, Chicago, but I think it's, now it's the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he w- got to saying that people that played the old types of games were brain damaged, <laughs> which was just flat out not true. Yeah. And it was something that he totally regretted uh, a few weeks later, but uh, the internet has a long memory, and mm. it's still online and The fact that it is online uh is something to do to uh his credit as well because Vincent Baker and uh, Ron Edwards have kept their sites and all their follows up as well as their successes so
2: mm. yeah. that's good, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, there's definitely a tendency to assume that whatever you like is the best thing ever. I mean, that's just human nature, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, speaking of whatever you like, so why don't we diverge here a little bit? And why don't we start talking about um, some of the most interesting and unusual um, role-playing games, many of which I suspect will fall under the category of cult role-playing games of one kind or another. So let's try going in that direction for a little bit. So, okay. Graham, what are some of the most interesting role playing games you've come across? Like some of the most unique and interesting indie games that most people won't have heard of before?
0: Uh, well, uh, Doe Pilgrims of the Flying Temple is a perfect example. I am holding a copy of it right now. and Can you repeat?
2: What's that called again?
0: Doe Pilgrims of the Flying
2: Temple. Doe Pilgrims of the Flying Temple. Okay, yes. and is that Doe spelt like D O H, like Homer, or is it D O E, or how is that spelled? D O. Just D O. Oh. Okay.
0: Yeah, okay. and it ref- it refers to well, it's it's a semi Asian sort of game, but right. uh, it's the temple is basically run by monks, and the characters are the teenagers who are. Sent on sort of a quest uh, to explore the universe, Mm -hmm. and they're sent along with a bunch of letters of everyone asking for help, and uh, they get into trouble uh, with uh, with every letter. And
2: hold on a sec. So who is so these. Okay, so they're given a bunch of letters of people who are asking the temple for help, and they're basically yes. told, almost like guardian angels, go down and see if you can help out? Yep. Okay, got it. Okay.
0: And it's funny because it's um, very simple mechanics. Uh, mm-hmm. Just draw some uh, pebbles, black and white pebbles. And And okay. uh, you get to determine... Which would, you get to choose whether to keep the black of the, uh, pebbles or the white pebbles. Mm -hmm. And, uh, depending on which, uh, you take, you have to write a sentence detailing or add a sentence to the story detailing whether or not your character gets into trouble, gets out of trouble or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that's a very interesting game because it's got an education aspect to as well as being a gamest game.
2: Yeah, that actually sounds like a really cool idea for a game. <laughs> I like uh, that
0: one. I also like Polaris, which is interesting because it has a system for conflict resolution,
3: mm-hmm.
0: which almost never drops to dice. It mm-hmm. You can run a conflict for several minutes at a time with uh, trading statements back and forth Mm -hmm. and then only if and it works out the right way do you have to actually roll dice Mm
3: -hmm. that
0: you can actually have uh, say that okay yes i want to kill the demon and the demon responds but you know it's um but you'll have to incur this penalty to, uh, kill me and then, but no, I want to show off killing the demon, uh, so that everyone's attached an attraction and then the demon responds, but some of them will fear you for it and the players, uh, can choose to end it there and the conflict is over and no dice were involved.
2: Huh. So you're basically just negotiating. yes that's actually a good way to do it. okay, I can see that oh, so as long as everyone's going to play by the rules and negotiate properly, that's fine. Yeah. Um,
0: well it's it's uh, funny because Polaris <coughs> feels like very much sorry Polaris feels very much like a religious ritual to play and if mm-hmm. you have everything set up right then it just makes sense to play using the ritual phrases.
2: Hmm. Interesting. What kind of ritual phrases are they, out of curiosity? Like, what, what, do you, Can you give me an example?
3: Um,
0: Sure. I think I've got them here. Oh, okay, so. Long ago, the people were dying at the end of the world, which starts the game. Um, but um so if you if you uh, want to enter conflict you well sorry if you want to enter conflict you have to pose something so if somebody wants to say I want to kill the demon and the person who plays them, uh, the demon is okay with that then the demon is killed but if they are conflicting it, Um, then they say, but only if, and then you suggest an additional thing. Uh, And furthermore, um, it shall not come to pass, which is uh, the indication that dice are needed. Mm -hmm. Um, You ask for too much, so it's... That may happen if the demon is on a cliff and you're at the base of the cliff and you're trying to kill it with a sword. Right. Yeah, hmm. you ask for too much because that doesn't make sense.
2: Hmm. Okay. So if you, hmm. the farther you push reality, the more likely it is that you might have to use dice, or the the more you want to accomplish, or the more you want, the uh, more you have to negotiate or risk using dice. Yes.
1: Okay. So that's, that's interesting too, because I think, uh, what Rob is saying, uh, the more you, you, you want to push reality as understood or perceived by the participants. Yes. Mm. I think that's kind of, I think it's kind of the interesting thing. Cause that's one of the, uh, uh, for anybody out there who's never played a role-playing game, uh, one of the things that I've always found is a trick is you've got a bunch of participants who are all trying to... You're, you're herding the cats in the same direction. Mm. And and you need some system of making sure that everyone's on that same kind of page, perception-wise.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that's been a big part of uh, the Forge debates. Um, mm-hmm. They've been trying to figure out uh, shared... Uh, sorry. Shared reality, or shared story. Um, mm-hmm. And they've got the most advanced system of that i've ever come across for mm-hmm. uh, encouraging or analyzing player actions
3: mm-hmm.
0: and shared reality and things like that but it's it takes 15 pages to explain <laughs> in writing so um wow i won't even attempt to do that here uh-huh
2: okay okay so I assume that's for a GM-less game. That's, those are for games that involve um, the players either having a rotating GM or just no GM at all. Is that correct?
0: Actually, actually it's not for GM-less games. It can be applied to any game. Oh, ah, okay. Uh, GM-less games or GM-full is the more proper term mm-hmm. because there's certain roles that a GM plays. You know, the plot... Um, doesn't advance without everyone input the Mm -hmm. uh npcs or non-player characters are have to be handled by somebody now Mm g um often the that job is handled by a different person every scene
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: but you can have games like polaris which actually split up the npc handling so you have one person handling the villains, another person handling the bystanders, another person handling the bystanders, and the hero. Another player handling the hero, mm-hmm. and uh, the handlers, the two handlers of the bystanders. Well, they took over the GM's role as arbiter of the rules as well, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to the person who plays the villain. And that's an example of gm full play uh, right. rather than gm gm well,
2: play right okay i can see that um although how do you determine who plays what role i mean in most games as a you know someone who game for many years most of my players always wanted to be the hero so how do you determine who the hero is in each scene
0: it's uh okay Part of it is negotiation, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is maybe sitting order around the table. So Polaris, for example, whoever plays the hero for the scene, the person opposite him or her mm-hmm. plays the villain, and the person to other side of him or her play the bystander characters. Now, okay. at the end of the scene, the that order switches, and a new person becomes the hero, but then everyone assigned... Assigned jobs, or everyone gets assigned new jobs based mm. on their seating
2: position. Right. In hmm.
0: relation to that player. So it's the, the funny thing is that the idea of a uh, game long or adventure long game master is being replaced by a shifting rule.
3: Mm.
0: And it, In order to do that, you need a different mechanic than uh, just game long. So Mm -hmm. they decided to rest upon the idea of scenes. And a scene is not like a scene in theater. Usually it uh, follows a single character. And it's just a subdivision of game session.
2: Okay. Okay. And... But who's determining the direction of the story then? I mean, just collectively, everyone is?
0: Um, Usually it is... Okay, usually the character is pushing... The player is pushing the story more than the game master because Mm -hmm. the, the characters have their own desires and the game master is reacting to that. That's true. Now, it's there are certain situations where the game master has to push the story or... Like Apocalypse World, the game master is in charge of pushing the plot along. Um, but the characters can step in and advance their own goals. And mm-hmm. it's, if you actually look at it, it's a lot of managing conflict because you have, if in the original Dungeons and Dragons and many games thereafter, when you attempted to do something, you would roll dice. Mm-hmm. That gave way to, in the indie game scene, to conflict management. And conflict management uh, actually grew out of games like Mekton and other games which had opposed rules. Okay, And the fact that it wasn't always a direct matchup. So I wanted to beat you versus you wanted to beat me. Yes, you could match it up. Mm-hmm. but I wanted to uh, get this, rescue the girl and uh, steal her away, away from the scene versus I want to smash her car and uh, cause as much destruction as possible to the vehicle.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: doesn't exactly match up, but that's what conflict resolution deals with. Mm-hmm. And so you, conflict resolution is largely based upon deciding what, uh, sorts of powers interact and interplay uh, for the story. Now there's another sort of resolution, which is called scene resolution, which is the main mechanic of the fiasco.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
0: uh, it actually goes more abstract than that. So you have to describe how your things go well or poorly. For your character based on the die uh, given to you or you choose. And it's very vague about uh, dealing with conflict because it assumes that you will just negotiate the, uh, the conflict or create the more, most interesting answer. Um, right. It doesn't always work out that way, but okay. eh, whatever.
2: <laughs> so in a system like this, um, like the one you're talking about, the Polaris there, how can you have, like, two or three characters be active in a scene? Can a scene have two or three heroes?
0: Um, Not usually. That's one of the big problems with Polaris. Oh, there is okay. only one hero in any scene, and mm-hmm. so there is only one person playing the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have multiple characters in the scene, but the others are bystanders.
2: Right. Right.
0: And therefore, don't have the bystanders don't have any ability to engage in the conflict without right. the heroes or the villains' permission.
2: Right. That's
0: oh. actually a rule in the game, hmm. and it's created lots of frustrations and problems. Uh, but I still love the game.
2: Okay. Mm. Hmm. Okay. All right, so any other role-playing games that uh, you think stand out, Any that our listeners wouldn't have heard of before?
0: Ooh, um, well, Microscope was very interesting because it actually told non-linear stories. Uh, Microscope okay. is a game, it's a story game, and mm-hmm. it's not a role-playing game because you don't have control of your characters uh, between the scenes. Mm-hmm. You may have control of the same character, but that's random. Uh, or that's provided that nobody else chose that character. Okay. Um, but it actually follows the story of culture. And it's, of course, from the beginning of the culture to the end of the culture. And thus spans vast amounts of time. Okay. And, um, <laughs> and it actually then breaks it down to periods, events, and scenes. And you can play it for as long as you want or as short a time as you want, but um yeah that it's uh very popular and it's actually uh available from a local game store, but it's not usually uh, available through stores, so actually the indie games market is largely uh Published and distributed through online stores, so mm-hmm. RPG Now, IndieGames.com, um, uh, the Gaming Unstore, or the Unstore, yeah, and various creators' websites. So right. it's difficult to collect ga- indie games, but because I'm already wired in, into the market, I mm-hmm. just have to go to the that uh, creator's website or have to figure out what the creator's website is Mm
2: -hmm. if
0: I hear of a game online and then I purchase it.
2: So most of these games you're purchasing, are they PDFs or are you getting like print on demand copies of them?
3: Um,
0: Because they're well, I prefer to get print on demand copies because Mm. I like paper over uh, electronic books, but usually they're sold as PDFs. um, Mm it's and pdfs are the cheaper way to of purchase course. them of course uh but you know the indie game makers have to keep uh their tables covered with food and mm-hmm. they have to keep the rent the roof over the head and thus giving the extra a few dollars for the printed copy is well worth the money in
2: my opinion right i can see that but well that leads to an interesting question. Are there any people that actually professionally for their livelihood make indie games?
0: Um the only person that I can think of off the top of my head is mm-hmm. someone who actually went from mainstream to indie hood. And okay. um, he's his name is Robin D. Laws and he's creator of Over the Edge and various other games. Mm-hmm. Um where he used to work were Atlas, Atlas Entertainment Games, the AEG. Mm-hmm. Um, and ever since then, uh, he has moved to Pelgrane Press, which is, it's a little bit more indie-ish. Um, mm-hmm. another person who is, has made the, that move. Oh, uh, Robin D. Laws lives in Toronto. So. Uh, oh, just like you. Yes. <laughs> um, another person who has made the switch over is John Wick, who also used to work for Alderac Entertainment Group or Entertainment Games. Um, and he is the man behind Legend of the Five Rings. And oh, okay. since then, he has been producing indie games, um, ex- almost exclusively. So he's produced House of the Blooded and Blood and Honor. And, yeah, is generally producing some Shotgun Diaries, which is, I've never played or even read,
2: but I do own House of the Blood. It's
0: a zombie game.
2: Oh, okay, Hmm. well, that'll do it too. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so actually, Don, let's let's change and give Graham a break for a minute. So, what are some like indie or cult games that you think stand out? Because you've been playing for a long time too, and I'm sure you've come across a couple of interesting ones.
1: Um, I think probably uh, pertaining to the, the the type of stuff we're discussing here, mm-hmm. two that r- two and a half. Because there's one that has a weird little bit that stick in mind for me is, um, mm-hmm. I like uh, Cosmic Patrol. Okay and it's 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 um it's it's closer to the uh the the storyteller kind of game there's rules that're really stripped down mm-hmm. It's interesting yeah. to note um when you talk about uh conflict resolution mm-hmm. that game has a system for conflict escalation
3: mm
1: hmm okay what, what happens during play is you earn plot points which are mm-hmm. kind of like luck I can spend one plot point and completely change everything in the scene mm-hmm. And you get them for being entertaining.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And you could do stuff like if we're playing and your character's about to shoot the bad guy and you got them lined up, your dice are good to go. Um, I could just drop a plot point and say, unfortunately, your gun jams. And then right. you look at me and go, what are you doing? Why are you being a dick? And like we can drag it out. And it, it was interesting because you get that. You can have that back and forth. Mm hmm. And it's because, again, that makes for a good story. Weird twists, Right, yeah. Um, and, another.
0: And, oh. oh, and Cosmic Patrol has a following on the Forge community. So mm. it's that speaks to its indie cred a little bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and um, another one that I liked was, uh, I mentioned it was, uh, it came from the Late 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 Show. Mm. And uh, what was interesting about that is, you your character is an actor who takes part in these bad movies so so what ends up happening is each adventure is like a movie and one of your stats is fame fame works like experience in most games that it goes up and whoever has the highest fame is the lead so if you're playing hmm. westerns um you'll be like the sheriff cuz your fame is higher and this guy who's got like a low fame he's going to be the Gabby Hayes character and mhm and they really play on that idea that you're a, a, an actor. So you're running the game straight. Mm. Uh, they add different conventions based on the genre. So if you're playing a Western and you sing a Western song, your right. character you can transverse any distance in one scene. Because mm-hmm. in the old Westerns, that's how they would do... That was how they did a transition scene with a musical number. Right. And you can do other stuff like based on your fame, you can have anachronistic uh, equipment hmm So you get you get um when you make your when you, you start the game, you get equipment based on the adventure, based on the genre. Um you'll get skills that your character might not have, the idea being that you get coaching before the game.
3: Mm-hmm. Um
1: if we're playing a Western and I have like a really high fame rating, I can take as anachronistic equipment, well I have an assault rifle. So now the showdown with Black Bart gets a lot easier for me. Mm-hmm. And that made me laugh. And then another one that I liked was a uh, Torg because Torg, it was more of a mainstream game. It played like a mainstream game. Right. But the idea was that reality itself was under attack. And one thing they had was um, the drama deck mm-hmm. where you would get cards for doing different things during the game and you could play them for different effects.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And a lot of them were story based. So there's like a, uh, like there's actually a long lost relative card. Hmm. So if we get captured by bad guys, I can play that. And one of them happens to be, like, my brother, we are separated when we're young. He recognizes me and helps us escape. Mm -hmm. And that was another one. Because I think, um, looking at the games that are considered indie, Mm -hmm. uh, what a lot of them seem to do is you involve the player more than the character. Mm -hmm. And I think those ideas... Are fantastic for even like I'm an old school gamer kind of guy, but I like those ideas of of that the game itself becomes a negotiation between mm-hmm. participants because then the participants themselves are active. Where if, if you're just rolling, well, I'm going to climb. My climb is this, and you just drop it. I see what happens. Well, the character is active, mm-hmm. but the player really isn't.
0: Yep,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's true.
0: And uh, Turg is has been b- brought up in a couple of uh, threads on The Forge 2. Mm-hmm. So, it's mm. it's been recognized as being the most indie cred mainstream game out there. <laughs> Actually, no. Cosmic Patrol it definitely has more indie cred. Okay. But
1: yeah. I think okay. though I think Cosmic Patrol you'd have to like I would say that does come from the indie school of thought. Mm. Whereas yeah, yeah, Torg was Torg was a big it was mainstream. It was like a multimedia thing cuz they did novels, there was a comic book that all tied in. But it was it was such a strange game because the attitude behind it was different and I think partly cuz it has an end, like it was designed from the beginning with an ending. Mhm. Which
2: is a bit yeah. odd or self-defeating from a financial per- point of view. Kind of.
0: But uh, Vampire hadn't... Well, Vampire originally, when it started up, was the end, but it wasn't designed to have an end. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: They ended it because they had written too much into the setting, and uh, it was just running out of steam. So, Yeah. yeah.
2: In other words, they couldn't sell the players more crap, so therefore they had to reboot everything to make players buy all new stuff.
0: And then the reboot failed, and they brought back uh, the old version, and yeah. So it's going through a cycle of nostalgia and things like that.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Games are like anything else, right? They're like any other kind of entertainment. They're subject to nostalgia of all kinds.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely. Um, let's see. So I guess I'm a little different, as you both know. Um, I, <laughs> I tend to actually prefer... I'm a little wacky. Um, as I, I tend to prefer more, I guess you could say solid games and less meta games.
1: So you're overall. less wacky.
2: You're right, actually. I actually am less wacky <laughs> yeah. in that sense. Okay, never mind. Um, so, for example, there's a game I was just, I was just talking with a friend about called uh, Wushu. Are either you familiar with it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's basically or, sorry, kind of the wushu martial arts. or
0: wusha? Wushu. Wushu.
2: Yes. Wushu. Yes. Wushu is different. Yep. Um, Wushu. At least I think it's called Wushu. It's a martial arts role playing game that came out a number of years yes, ago. Yes,
0: I'm familiar with it. Yep.
2: Like quite a few years it, ago. Roughly it roughly the
0: same ago. time as Weapons of Odds.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be it. um And one of the things. And my friend was like, well, this game should be right up your alley. This should be the most natural fit game for you. And I said, no, not really. Because when I play a game, I want the experience of going through the game and um, my character and I working our way through problems and solving things rather than just dropping into meta. I'll give you an example. Wushu has an actual, I think it's um, an ability, okay, called beat up (laughs) mooks. Okay? And depending on what your score is with this game... hmm?
0: Which I stole from uh Shadowfest.
2: Okay. I think they're by the same writer, weren't they?
0: I Maybe think it so too.
2: Yeah. I don't know. But um in any, in any case, so depending on what you, what your ability is, it just lets you basically just mow down minions just as a action, basically. It's like yes, this action this you know round I'm gonna take down five minions. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And Dawn laughs because Dawn thinks, oh, that's kind of cool and cute and everything because in martial arts movies, that's kind of how it works. Mm-hmm. But for me, I actually don't like that. I would rather take the time... I guess I'm a simulationist that way. I would rather take the time and mow down those minions. I would rather like put the thought into it and say, okay, so I'm going to divide my action. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I've got to put this into that, this into that. And okay, that's how I'm going to take down those minions. And I might succeed, I might not, but at least I've actually had to put some thought and action into it instead of saying, okay, I beat these five guys up. Like, to me, that almost defeats the purpose of the game. That's, that's what I mean by I like a solid game. I like the detail, the nitty-gritty. I don't want to just go meta and say, yes, in a kung fu movie this happens, so therefore it happens.
1: Hmm. See, that's, that's where I would make the, the counter-argument hmm. that putting a rule like that in, and um, for the D20 system, when they did the solid supplement, if you take the badass character class that's one of their abilities too that you just destroy x number of no name uh, dickweeds mm-hmm. but i would make the argument that no that's actually very simulationist because that is a convention of the genre mm-hmm. that yeah you never like like when when bruce lee or one of his many clones jumps mm-hmm. into the middle of all the guys there's, there's never any doubt what's going to happen there's it it simulate it simulates the feel of the genre,
2: mm-hmm. as
1: opposed maybe to the nuts and bolts of what within the genre is actually happening to let this occur.
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: Which kind of goes in a little bit of a circle, but I kind of. well, yeah,
2: I, I get the idea. Get yeah. I get the idea of what you're saying, but at the same it's time. The, hmm? Go, Graham. It,
0: it's the difference between a simulating a world and simulating a genre. Mm-hmm. It. They're both simulations, but genre, genre is not reality. Right. And mm-hmm. simulating world is not a particular genre. Um, although you could describe it as a genre if we decided to call simulating world a, a genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you're simulating a literary genre and, mm-hmm you'll never have perfect matchup with simulating a world because a genre is not a full world.
2: That's true. I mean, that's where I guess you get into what would be called narrow games, right? Where basically you're creating a game and a rule set for that game that's for a particular, sometimes particular situation or a very particular story. Yeah. And... I know those have become popular in the last decade or so as well, is people creating narrow games for specific purposes.
0: And a perfect example is uh, Sorry, The Mountain Witch. And uh, it is a very very narrow game. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lady Blackbird is too. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is designed for a specific adventure. Um, and has specific specific characters made for it. And once you're done the adventure, yes, you can go on to do other adventures, but you'd have to... uh, There's no progression mechanic in it, or if there is a progression mechanic in it, it's very small. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to be played in a single afternoon, as is Fiasco, but Fiasco is a little bit more old open-ended in terms of story choices and right definitely has no progression mechanic because ends are very very badly for every Mm. character
2: (laughs) right okay kind of like paranoia that way
0: yeah what's Um, interesting oh paranoia you can succeed but yeah yeah i guess it's a little like paranoia that way Mm.
1: Well, yeah, except Paranoia, you theoretically can succeed, but no, they tell you're in a Game Master section. Step on them. <laughs> so... Yeah. yeah. Well, there's another example of
2: a fairly popular quasi-mainstream but independently-minded game, Paranoia.
3: Mm.
2: I mean, think mm. about the games that came were coming out at that time, which were all very D&D-ish, and then you had Paranoia, which has a completely different mindset from everything else that was coming out at the time. Yeah, sure. true. Great
3: great
0: caustic in and if you go back to the older versions of paranoia it's definitely more indie-minded the later editions of paranoia Mm -hmm. it's gone mainstream so Mm -hmm.
2: okay i could
1: definitely see that yeah so for me oh Oh, sorry Don. oh no i was just gonna say uh for paranoia too it's interesting because it blurs all of the lines about what we were just discussing because the world and the genre are kind of all caught up in the same thing. And it, it, it's, it's one of those games. It's hard to judge in any capacity because it really kind of is its own little thing way over here by itself.
2: Actually, maybe you better explain Paranoia to the audience, Don.
1: Um, well, the way they explain it in the, uh, in the rules, as they say, picture a, uh, the world of the future is written by Huxley as written by a, uh, by, uh, why can't I remember the name of the guy who did 1984 uh, or well oh. and the Marx oh, well. brothers mm-hmm. that it's, it's this post-apocalypse world. Uh, there was some great disaster. It changes from book to book. Mm-hmm. Um, you play part, one of the citizens of alpha complex, which is this, this future dystopia post-apocalypse world run by a computer. Who's your mm-hmm. friend. Computer is your friend. Remember the that. Computer is your friend. Yes. Yeah. And, it's 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 interesting because it's presented as wackiness, that everything's way out of sync, nothing makes sense, there's like forms for everything. Um belonging to a secret society is treason, so of course everybody has to. Uh having mm-hmm. mutant powers is treason, so of course everybody starts the game with them. And it's it's trying to navigate this world where everything hates you basically and it's also interesting because I have to say growing up the thing that taught me the most valuable lessons in life was that game mm-hmm. because it teaches you how to deal with bureaucracy and how to deal with organizations and, and your fellow people. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just have a sad life, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a, again, I hazard to say comedy
3: mm-hmm.
1: because it's a comedy in that it it's like uh like, like, Shaun of the Dead, mm-hmm. that it's, it's funny a dark to comedy. us. Say again?
0: It's a dark comedy.
1: It is, It is. but it's, it's weird because I, I wouldn't necessarily just call it a comedy because given that world, mm-hmm. this is how it would play out, and it seems hilarious and ridiculous to us, but you don't have to kind of put a comedic slant on things given the way that world is set up. Like, that is what would would happen, hmm. which is hard to explain. And again, I don't think that's quite the uh, a clear explanation, but I think... It'll, it'll do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it'll, give, it'll give you the idea. Let's just say it's Dark Future, but it's not exactly Hunger Games, a role-playing game. No, it's... Well, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, you could play, uh, you know, Perky Young Archers or something like that, and that would be okay, too. Um, unfortunately, they all the players would have killed each other
1: by the end of the story. Well, that's how it usually plays out, though, because wait, that is the Hunger Games, I guess. Oh well, yeah. See, and this is what I mean. It, it sort of it's its own little thing. You can't really prop it. But if anybody gets the chance, the uh, first two editions were brilliant, and I highly suggest at least reading the books if not playing. Hmm, <laughs> I can see that.
0: And everyone gets killed multiple times. So yep. you have clones. <laughs>
2: Yeah, have clones that pop back up. You have extra lives. That's true. Mm-hmm. Now, are the clones in the game considered innocent when they pop back up? Or yes. are
1: they? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think we both just gave the proper paranoia answer. Yes. No. No, yes. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> you are both people that have
2: played paranoia, apparently. Okay.
1: Okay. Because what happens is you earn treason points during the game. And when your new clone pops up... hmm you're assumed to be basically through an amazing coincidence. You've lived pretty much a parallel life. But as I recall, you roll to take a certain number of treason points off when the new mm-hmm. guy sh- otherwise, like if you're in 10, you're a traitor and you get executed usually by the group for the bonus points. Otherwise, every time you popped up, you'd still have 10 points and you would just get executed. Although we've done it that way too. Um, right. So I've wait, that, a... wouldn't,
2: wouldn't that mean that one player is being hunted down by the rest of the group?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That's kind. Of, the game encourages you to screw each other over. Okay. So
0: I played, I played a later edition of the game, which actually had the death of the character uh, wipe out the treason points. And it's funny because you knew the character was a treason uh, traitor, but uh, you had to just watch the character very closely to <laughs> prove that he or she mm. was the traitor that his previous clone was. Right. So, yeah. It, characters were, went through, like, it's easy to lose all six of your clones in half an hour if you play <laughs> mm. the right way or the wrong way or whatever. Uh, I have also heard of a player getting through an entire adventure on his first clone. So, eh, whatever.
2: Mm. So, In some ways, then, it's starting to sound to me like indie gaming, or whatever, indie games, are almost a mindset. They're games or rules that are offering something different than what the mainstream role-playing game market offers. Is that correct? Would that make sense? Yes. So, any game, I mean, even... Okay, so for example, then would a game like Castle Falkenstein, then, be an indie game?
0: No, because the mindset that you're talking of is actually out of the designer, not the players. Mm.
2: Oh, okay.
0: So the designer is like, okay, if we have a group of five people and one of them Mm -hmm. is Game Master or whatever, GM is we're actually a group of six people, possibly more. Mm -hmm. Because the missing player is the game designer. Mm Mm-hmm. And the game designer uh, can take a mindset of the indie games, uh, as we're describing them now, and work that into the game.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, if we as players uh, choose to modify the game, then mm-hmm. we can become effectively designers.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So... We can, say, play original 1973 or 74 edition Dungeons & Dragons, but then mm-hmm. modify it to be uh, indie game-ish
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, by taking the player's uh, reactions into account for every combat.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And that would be player mindset, but that's a des- the player acting as a designer. Okay. So what we're we're actually doing is uh, mapping out the designer mindset of the sorry the the mindset of the designers as opposed to the players. But the fact that we are often uh, modifying games, and mm-hmm. uh, I think the research was done, which was said eighty percent of groups modify games. Actually, mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit low. It's probably close probably to ninety-five yeah. percent of the groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that uh, allows the uh, individual groups to take on the mindset of, say, let's take the players into account, Mm -hmm. Mm. as opposed to just the game designer uh, giving those rules explicitly.
2: Okay. Hmm. That's interesting. So speaking of that, so what kind of person is drawn to indie games? Like what, what's the appeal of indie games?
0: Uh, they're cheap, they're small, they're fast. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are certain sorts of indie games which are not small. Um, mm-hmm. OSR games can be small or big. Um, old school Renaissance is what OSR stands for. Mm-hmm. Uh But uh usually indie game is cheap and small. Um -hmm. and when I say cheap, uh it's probably gonna be about thirty dollars for the entire game. Uh possibly sixty with uh expansions, but you know, there's usually they're only a single book Mm -hmm. and uh they're fun. Mm -hmm. So it's and if you only want, like, a single night of entertainment, uh, for an entire group, $30 right. is pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, if you I want multiple so. nights, multiple nights of entertainment, uh, then you can pick up a game like Apocalypse World, and that will provide you with entertainment till, uh, the adventure runs out. And right. it's, um, Apocalypse World will run Multiple nights, and you only have to spend, I think Apocalypse World is about $35, $40. Let's um, okay. see here. Uh Monster Hearts, which I have, is actually $20, $28, and it's a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Hmm. Okay. Um, which means that it runs on the base system as Apocalypse World.
2: Apocalypse World, right. So what so, makes the Apocalypse World system unique? Like, what's um, what's the major advantages or features of this system?
0: Um, it actually... Okay. Apocalypse World has a long lineage of... Uh, based on shark, uh, social science fiction, and other games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it managed to structure things and put things in language uh, in such a way that it sold really well. And by sold really well, I mean the possibly thousands of games. Oh, okay. Um,
1: which Ooh, the big I cut. know... Is, yeah, it
0: it is one of the two big games out of the Forge community. Mm-hmm. Fiasco is the number one game out of the Forge community and Apocalypse World is second place. Okay. Um, And might have even hit 10000 but yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, not that severe. Uh, Vincent Baker won't be able to retire on that money because that's right. over six years. Um, but it's it set out several things and it has a Game Master position which says you can only declare things, but the players can... T- can contest the results and that requires the Mm -hmm. game master to be very aggressive with the characters Mm -hmm. but it details how to be aggressive with the characters and also be a fan of the characters and deal with the players at the same time and the explicit the explicit sorry the fact that it made that explicit and in the advice section and it's about uh, third chapter in the book um, made it a groundbreaker for role playing mm-hmm. games whereas most games would save that for a game master advice book that may mm-hmm. or may not be purchased later on mm-hmm. um a World actually advised that in the main rule book and it's actually started to give very game specific advice but the advice is usable by some some of the advice is usable in any game
2: okay Hmm. um so is it a gm full or gm-less game
0: um despite what vincent baker claims apocalypse world is actually very difficult to play gm full in any way, shape, or form. Now it has been converted um, to GM full status uh, mm-hmm. by in the game famous Koo, um which is created by I forget, uh, mm-hmm. but Avery, I forget her last name, but uh, she also wrote. Wait a second here, I'll check the McDonald's.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um Avery McDonald's actually took Apocalypse World Mechanics and advice and combined them with her ideas of a queer community
3: mm-hmm.
0: and created a game out of that mess. So mm-hmm. a GM GM full game out of that mess Mm -hmm. but it it's an amazing game but oh god is it difficult to play if you've never uh if you've only played games like in Dungeons and Dragons
2: right okay okay I can see that now I know from talking to you that in your collection you actually have some Japanese games that's correct
0: yes I do or I have a Japanese game
2: you have a Japanese game. Okay. Yeah. So how are Japanese role-playing games different than Western role-playing games?
0: Japanese games tend not to have the multi-sided dice. Um, they've only got D6s available. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to either use D6s extensively or they have to go some dice diceless method. Uh, the game that I have it uses d sixes and um, sorry no it doesn't use d sixes it uses diceless so it um, you accumulate points over the game and you have to spend the points to do things um, depend how many points you have to spend depend on your stats and things like that but uh, you get the drift and it's a game about it's Golden Sky Stories. Um, which is mm-hmm. used to be called uh Koyake in Japanese, I think. Uh I'm not sure about the pronunciation. It was mm-hmm. created by Rio uh which you told me was actually probably an alias. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a game about making friends with various people. You're a bunch of spirit animals, uh Basically, little gods, and you have powers, but you are just making friends with the local villagers. And yeah, that now that's the only game I have. I do have Weapons into the Gods, which is uh, based on a Chinese comic book, but mm-hmm. is made by Americans and follows. I was this
2: by Americans?
0: Yeah. Yeah, Eos Press um. was the publisher.
2: Yes, Yaspress um Weapons of the Gods is an amazing game. We mentioned it before on the on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, so it sounds like that game that you got there, the Japanese one, it's almost like Yokai watch, except it's the reverse. You're the you're the players of the yokai instead of people catching them.
0: Yeah, and it's Golden Sky Stories or Yoyaki Koyaki Koyake is actually uh, the Japanese equivalent of an indie game. So, mm-hmm. the Japanese games are, the mainstream games are like Dungeons and Dragons and various mecha formed at, adaptations of them and it, right. they're basically combat fests. Right, yeah. But Yoake Koyaki was Ryo Kunya's uh, attempt to fight against the combat mess and create mm-hmm. the game of friendship. And right. It's funny because it's actually fun to play. I've played it several times, and I look forward to playing it again.
2: Wow. Okay. Interesting. How did you actually get a hold of that thing?
0: Um. It. I got a hold of it through Kickstarter. Um. But it is available through game stores, or it's available through. Well, it's available through one game store. Right. Um, here in Toronto for one games, uh, right. I don't know if here tarantula carries it anymore or not. Um, but it's available also online and therefore downloadable and uh, right. translations co- translated copies uh, are available from uh, online stores. I don't remember which store because I don't usually look for it on the, the online store once I have it. in. That okay. Section. That's
2: okay. Yeah. But it, but if, if our audience actually searches for it or I'll see if I can put a link in the show notes basically mm-hmm. where they can find it, if they want to check it out.
0: Yeah. And okay, it's, interesting. it's been, it's impressed enough people to actually get mentioned on the 401 games homepage webpage, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is actually a rather impressive feat with, because role-playing games are almost never mentioned on uh, websites, but mm-hmm.
2: But that one actually made the cut. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Are there any other games you would recommend people check out?
3: Mm, Hmm. Any
0: other
2: more obscure games? (laughs) If not, that's okay.
0: Kingdom is like microscope except for nations, but it's a more advanced version of microscope. Um.
2: Wait. So, in Kingdom, would you would the players individually be the leaders of said kingdoms, or are they represent, representations of the kingdoms?
0: I don't know. I've got it, but I haven't played it yet.
2: Cause that sounds uh, to me like Hitalia, the role-playing game.
0: It is quite possibly Hitalia, the uh, role-playing game.
2: For those um, listeners who aren't familiar, Hitalia is a Japanese manga I think there's an anime version strip. yeah where all the characters represent different nations during the world war ii period
0: oh um, i believe it's
2: during world war ii period mm, and yeah. uh, so all the character and so all their relations and the relationships are all based on the personalities of the countries and the connections the countries have with each other it's very very odd but it's <laughs> kind of amusing at the same time
0: okay it is not that sort of game <laughs> although you could play to Italia with within the kingdom um it like microscope spans vast periods of time so from mm-hmm. the rise of the kingdom to the end of the kingdom right uh, which means may happen in a single generation but probably not um
2: so Why? you follow a kingdom okay as
0: opposed to a culture
2: Okay, but why would someone want to play something like that, for example, as opposed to just booting up a copy of Sid Meier's Civilization on whatever machine of choice and playing out Civilization? I mean, what would the advantage to doing it this way be?
0: You get to tell a more robust story. Mm -hmm. Um, You get to delve more into the culture of the the kingdom. So whether or not the kingdom uh, or the culture uh allows gay marriage or not might mm-hmm. matter. Okay. It, or it might not. It you have to determine whether it does or not.
2: Right. Okay. Um sounds like it would take a very long time to play one of these games.
0: Um usually I've played Microscope. It can be played in four hours. Mm-hmm. Um go Pilgrims of the Flying Temple plays The first game plays about an hour. Successive games probably half an hour to an hour. Okay, Um, that I could
2: see. Apocalypse ruled. Oh, sorry, go.
0: Apocalypse ruled takes several sessions. Um, Polaris takes several sessions and has a beginning, the end, and an end, which is actually. a common feature to many of the, these games. They've got beginning, middle, and ends, which makes them uh, very different from uh, other types of stories, like Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons is an open ended system. It may have an end, but not necessarily designed into the system.
2: Mm, right. Well, the GM is adding one. Or yes. the players are adding one, depending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, then. So, Graham, as someone who's been researching and playing and um, very involved with studying role-playing games and such, what do you think the future of role-playing games is?
0: Um, They will always fade in and out of uh, popularity. Mm-hmm. Because role-playing games are such a niche thing, mm-hmm. um, board games and card games will always... Uh, take the forefront and collectible card games especially because uh, before Magic the Gathering Mm -hmm. uh, card games were sort of a secondary thing. Right. But board games have always held a position as fading in and out of practice and uh, card games now have hit that status. Um... So it goes: board games, something else, card games, something else, board games, something else, board, card games, something else, and the something mm-hmm. else's could include war games, role-playing mm-hmm. games, altered reality games. Um, video games are sort of a separate category, so it's not really into the mix. Uh, Live-action role-playing, um, yeah,
3: okay. and.
0: I'm more interested, well, I'm interested in researching the indie role playing game scene, mm-hmm. and, um, it's funny because most researchers of analog games are into role playing games and, uh, variations thereof. So, mm-hmm. live action role playing games and role playing games. Right. But, uh, Academics are not going with the most popular games, which is, you know, board games like chess, uh, mm-hmm. Go, and even like other games like Axes and Allies and things like that. So, yeah.
3: mm-hmm. so, okay.
0: so that's the future for role playing, uh, in my head because it, it will likely uh retain some value, and mm-hmm. because it's it's a chance to get together with your friends and mm-hmm. tell a story together
3: mm-hmm.
0: and once that started, it's very difficult to wipe that wipe that out from the culture right yeah. uh, because it's more social than computer games or networked games even. Mm-hmm. but um, it's always in each market.
2: Right. Okay. So, gaming and role-playing games are just going to always be niche. There's not really going to be another breakout of them. Well, I mean, not pen and paper versions anyway.
0: It's actually... Okay. The original Dungeons & Dragons breakout only happened Mm -hmm. because there was controversy surrounding Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. And you talked about that in your previous podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. Unless that happens with uh, people being told that role playing games are bad in the future, mm -hmm. which I really can't predict that happening, um, then there will remain a niche market. But if that happens again, Mm -hmm. well, I don't know.
2: All bets are off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I guess that's our plot, guys. We have to get together and convince the world that role-playing games are evil and corrupting society. That's, ah, the, that's the last best hope for role-playing games.
0: And the, the thought that that's the last best hope just fills me with dread.
2: Yep. Well, of it ever being mainstream. But again, that's pen and paper. Role-playing games are actually about to take off in the hugest way possible. After all, we're on the edge of a virtuality revolution. Mm. And once that kicks in, everybody's going to be playing role-playing games all the time. Yes, they're going to involve like shooting stuff or having sex, but the thing is that they're going to be role-playing games, right? People are going to be playing all kinds of games hmm. constantly. The whole society is going to be inundated with them. They just will happen on computer-generated worlds instead of in people's imaginations.
0: Actually, those are not role-playing games per se, what you're talking about. mm mm-hmm. Those are altered reality games, um, because if you're talking about the Google Glass, where in... Um,
2: Actually, I'm talking more about uh, like the HTC Vive and the okay. uh, Oculus Rift. Mm. All, uh, you're right. If you're, we're talking about augmented reality, like, say, Pokemon yeah. Go, that would be an altered reality game, wouldn't it?
0: alternate reality game altered reality yeah altered reality works in there there's another word for a and ARG which you know a different type of game which doesn't require a computer but yeah the, the semantics of those uh, level of differentiations is just lost to me
2: okay okay um, so Anyway, my point is is that I would say that the games they're playing on the Oculus Rift or the next generations of those types of like headset and haptic control and everything, that stuff's going to be role-playing games where they're going around and have experiencing worlds of one form or another. They might be just the next level of World of Warcraft, but they're still going to be basic role-playing games.
0: Yeah, but it's. It's not quite the same to tell a story and to actually live a story. Or mm-hmm. sorry, have to live a story um, because you're so, the hero in your own story.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And to actually have to acknowledge other people that you're playing with, mm-hmm. that's the strength of role-playing games. It's the social aspect of it
2: mm-hmm.
0: rather than the story aspect or the play aspect of it. It's just actually getting together with a bunch bunch of friends Mm
3: -hmm. and
0: sitting down, doing, it's an excuse to get together rather than an excuse to play.
2: Right. Well, it acts as a social experience, right? Yeah. Mm. In theory, getting together with a group of friends, putting on virtual reality helmets and running around together in a dungeon is also still a social experience. It's just a tiny bit different one
0: and it's uh every level of media that have you, you have uh separating you from reality mm-hmm. is going to cut out some level of expression that's true so it's the technology is going to have to get a lot more advanced before it captures the full body and gives feedback to the full body mm-hmm. um, the way that we actually need to communicate and uh voice and things like that so it you need to have both massive amounts of output and mm-hmm. massive amounts of input on everybody's computer mm-hmm. and yeah I don't you, see that happen anytime soon although I might be, who knows I might be wrong
2: I, the level you're talking I don't think you're wrong it's gonna take time although I would measure it in decades at most yeah,
3: yeah.
1: I think I think you guys are kind of both going the wrong direction. Yeah. Well, screw you. <laughs> okay, us. why? Well, because I think when you talk about like augmented reality, altered reality virtual reality, um, mm-hmm. becoming the next generation of role-playing, I think what you have to have happen has nothing to do with the technology. What you need to have happen, which I think the big companies are going to stomp on, which is is the true stumbling block, Mm -hmm. is the ability for the participants to somehow add to the reality everyone's partaking of.
0: That is a very key point, good uh, point, Don, because that is Mm -hmm. the basic difference between uh, computer role-playing games and uh, tabletop role-playing games, is that Mm -hmm. computer role-playing games are created by uh, the game designers, Mm -hmm. and yes, the... People may be allowed to create buildings and the world in general architecturally, but they don't get to add to uh, the world,
2: uh,
3: make the
0: hold, world in general.
2: Hold on a sec. That's not always true. There was a game that was middling popular for a while there, a massively multiplayer game called Second Life. And on yes. Second Life, people were, it was pretty much an open sandbox where people just did whatever they wanted and they created huge structures, they created communities, they created mm. all sorts of stuff.
0: But it's, compare that to uh, explaining the subtleties of communication. Mm-hmm. So if I say I yell at somebody, mm. then a role-playing game, you yell at somebody, you know, you describe it, but you don't actually yell at the person. Whereas
2: mm. I suppose right. you could
0: yell at someone, but
2: I second life, at people, but that's just
0: me. Yeah. But second life didn't have that, uh, element of communication because mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, you could create buildings. And that's what, why I mentioned the architecture thing mm. because second life, uh, uh created, allowed the creation of buildings. But to actually create a culture, to design a culture, to design a language, to design a um, slang. Well, you can design slang in uh, Second Life, but you actually have to have people supporting the idea of slang and that particular slang. And it's far easier, far less resources to create a uh Slang system out of naturally out of uh, role playing games than it is to actually get a, a group of people and actually get them using the slang properly in a computer role playing game.
1: Yeah, I could see that. because see, I would think um, Second Life I would consider to be one of those gray areas because yeah. it's very similar to to, to like a role playing game, like a like the kind of things you can do in a tabletop role playing game. Mm-hmm. But the scope and the scale of the participants, I find, is kind of uh, a limiting factor because you're not getting. It's more like texting. You're not getting actual exchange. It's close, but because it's diffused throughout the populace, as it were, it's not quite the same.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I think it's it's also got the problem. The um, way I explain what makes a a role playing game, especially a tabletop one, different from a a video game or a video role-playing game would be um if we're playing World of Warcraft, we can't say, screw it, let's just like start a hot dog wagon because there's no provision for that in the game. Now if we're playing D D we could totally stop and start a hot dog wagon because I've had That's group true. I've had groups do things like that. Because there's there's still the game, the rules no matter how detailed they are are facilitating the imaginations of the participants. Mm -hmm. And if we can go as beyond them as we want, we can limit ourselves to them as we want, but there's always that option where even the most sophisticated video game, you can still only do the things that the game is designed to do.
0: Yeah.
1: That's true. And thus, you
0: you can't boil water in Second Life. Mm
1: Mm-hmm until somebody comes up with the, the patch that lets you do that. Right. Which, but it, yeah. Cause it's, it's similar to what you can do in a role playing game, but mm-hmm. it still skews more toward away from it because in a role playing game, we can just come up with stuff like that on the fly and all the participants have a hand in it. And here's mm-hmm. our new rule for boiling water. And everybody's like, Oh, I came up with the idea of it doing like five D six damage and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's, again, it's, it's, it's a similar experience, but I do think that there's a, a there, there's a difference.
2: Yeah. Okay. I agree. Okay. Hmm. okay. I can see your point. I can see. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can see that it's different for now. Yeah. I do think that eventually things are going to change, though. I mean, there will come a point where players will literally be using virtual reality sandbox technology to create whole worlds as though they are gods. Mm-hmm. And, um, then let, and then other people will be able to enter these worlds and play in them. Mm. And that'll probably be a big thing, maybe 20, 30 years in the future.
0: Um, it's part. probably going to take a little bit longer than that.
2: Well, it'll depend on technology and depend on a few advancements. That's true. But the key point is, is that that probably will happen at some point. Um, version of it happened with MMORPGs. That's kind of what Second Life was an attempt at. Mm-hmm. And I think that will continue in the future. Who knows? Maybe we're in such a simulation right now, actually. We're, we're actually living in someone's simulation from a sufficiently advanced society.
1: Someone who hates me, apparently.
2: Well, there is that. <laughs> Unless yeah. that person was a masochist, in which case, maybe they <laughs> are you.
0: Be thankful, though. You know, you've got your uh, roof over your head, you've got your job, uh, your mm. food on your table. A lot of people uh, live with way, way less than that. So, Very um, true. It's every time uh, I start thinking that way, it's like, oh, yeah. And I've, I pull up my copy of Dog Eat Dog. And it's like, oh, right. These <laughs> right. people have worse.
2: Well, and that's something good. I mean, role-playing games, whether indie role-playing games or normal ones can, or more traditional ones, can teach us about life. I and mean, they can remind us about life sometimes, like any other form of entertainment. They can be educational. And they can be beneficial for us in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And um, on that note, I think we should probably bring this particular session to a close. Graham, any final thoughts you want to express before we go?
3: Uh,
0: indie games are not the monsters everyone makes them out to be. They're not this strangeness that everyone makes them out to be. Um, but mm-hmm. if you are used to playing, Other role-playing games Mm -hmm. then playing an indie game is very difficult okay Mm -hmm. if you have never role-played before Mm
3: -hmm.
0: then playing an indie game is the most joyous experience ever and I've run games for players like this and I've run games for players who played before Mm -hmm. and the players who had never played anything before, they got right into it. Right. The players who had the preconceptions and who had played other role playing games before, they were stumbling left, right, and center. And by the end of the game, they got it, but it was about half an hour before the indie game, sorry, the non-indie game player or the non-experienced role player got it mm. and three hours before the experienced role players got it so well, it's a
2: different mindset right you're having to yes. completely shift gears mm.
0: and if you were trained if you're ex- coming with expectations then that will only hamper you in playing
2: the games hmm. interesting so that's something to keep in mind keep an open mind okay yeah
1: hmm Don, any final thoughts? Um, I think the 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 biggest thing to remember, um, like I, I've I've said before for a lot of different things, is don't get wrapped around the axle about terms and categories. Um, always try something different, try something new. If you've heard like some weird little indie game that people are there's some buzz, give it a shot. Because even if you're an old school I want my thousand pages of charts. What's my mm-hmm. armor class role player? The the nice thing about the the indie games is they offer different ways of doing things. And you mm-hmm. can almost always find something that you can add to whatever other kinds of games you're already playing.
2: That's true. And and they might give you a new perspective in your normal role-playing. Even if you're a Dungeons & Dragons player, playing an indie game might actually give you a new idea of how to play Dungeons & Dragons in a more enjoyable way or how to get more out of your more traditional mainstream Mm role-playing. So it's always worth trying out indie games and seeking them out just because you might like them and you might learn something. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Or you might not like them, but you might learn something anyways
2: that's entirely possible yep. and on that note uh, thanks everyone for listening please tune in next time we'll be talking about something really interesting that you're absolutely going to love and you'll find out about it on the next episode of the Department of Nerdly Affairs A Star Wars Holiday Special Cosplay Good night, folks
1: <laughs> bye I got, I got one in
2: <laughs> thanks for listening to the show